0: Testing 123. Testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode My Corona. Today's date is March 24th, 2020, and we continue to be in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic that is sweeping not only the United States of America, but also the entire world many people in the us of a are under lockdown orders which are more euphemistically called shelter in place orders by the respective governors of whatever state you happen to live in the state i live in is washington state and the governor here jay insley just last night issued a stay in place order which is supposed to go into effect tomorrow night wednesday evening for the state of washington everybody who is not considered to be emergency Personnel are supposed to, by order, stay in their homes, not go to work, not be out and about, not be among other people with the idea in mind that by so doing, we will hopefully shut down the transmission of this pandemic or at least cripple it so that we can get through the coronavirus pandemic without it infecting more people then it absolutely has to. Fortunately, or unfortunately, as the case may be, Radio Free Mormon, yours truly, is one of those listed emergency personnel, and so I need to be at work. I need to be going to work on a daily basis. And while I am doing this, it has occurred to me that I should... Up my broadcasting transmissions, my episodes, because there are a lot of people out there who are sheltered in place with little to nothing to do except spend time with your families and grow closer to one another. Maybe learn new skills, binge watch TV shows, and get caught up on all that culture you've been missing because you have to go to work and earn a living. So, what I am going to be trying to do is to do my part to relieve the boredom of those sheltering at home during this pandemic. I have seen that Andrew Lloyd Webber has begun playing some of his wonderful music on his piano, and that has been being streamed in order for people to watch and listen to while they are sheltering at home. Even Sir Patrick Stewart is getting into the act, and he is streaming his reading of Shakespeare. Boy, That sounds boring. That doesn't sound like something that's going to relieve boredom. It sounds like something that's going to proliferate boredom. But God bless you, Patrick. I appreciate everything you're doing. In the midst of all this, I want to be part of the boredom relief effort and join with Sir Patrick Stewart and Andrew Lloyd Webber in trying to transmit more Radio Free Mormon. Now, this is not going to be as polished as my podcasts typically are As you may know, my podcasts take 15 to 20 hours in order to produce. There's a great deal of research that goes into them. Then there's a great deal of recording and then a great deal of editing. I spend many hours editing every podcast so that it can be the polished and perfected production that my listeners have come to expect. So I hope you'll bear with me because I will not have the time to be doing too much editing. I will go back and edit some in order to edit out coughs that I may inadvertently give during the podcast in order to edit out certain swear words that I may shout during the podcast when I cannot remember something like Sir Patrick Stewart's last name which I had a great deal of difficulty remembering but I, I edited out that long pause while I'm sitting there thinking about it and cursing myself for not being able to remember his last name. I told this to Bill Real once that if he listened to my original raw unedited footage of my podcast It would probably make him blush because I paint the air blue with swear words from time to time, especially when I'm saying the same thing three times and I keep mispronouncing the same word over and over again, and I can't quite get it out of my mouth. Frequently, a swear word is just what is needed in order to get me to be able to pronounce it correctly. I will also be editing out any swear words just so that you know. So this podcast will be family friendly. Excuse me for just a second here. Uh, All right. There is my, how did Elder Uchtdorf put it back when he was President Uchtdorf before his sudden demotion? That is my caffeinated diet soda that shall not be named. Mm. Oh, okay. That's what I needed. Well, there's a couple of thoughts that I have that I want to share with you. I have been in touch with friends such as Bill Real, such as Alan Mount, such as other friends, which shall not be named on this podcast because just for them to be known that they are friends of mine could have negative consequences in their personal and professional life. But I've been talking to a number of people and we've been talking about various things, some of them related to the coronavirus, some not. But as to those things related to the coronavirus, you may remember that on my last podcast, which went up last Sunday, it was called Backdating Prophecy. I talked about the fact that many Mormons are seeing President Nelson's words from last General Conference talking about this upcoming General Conference in the first weekend of April of 2020, still a little over a week away, that this upcoming conference would be celebrating and commemorating the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's vision and that it would be a conference unlike any conference before. Well, some Mormons have sort of dropped off the first part of those comments by President Nelson, and they focused on the last part, that this conference would be unlike any conference before, and have seen in this a prophecy, yes, verily, even a great prophecy of the coronavirus and that because this conference, there's not gonna be anybody allowed in the conference center. In fact, now, the latest I've heard is that the people who are speaking, the leaders of the church, are not gonna be speaking from the conference center because that would have too many people together, even if there's nobody attending. They wanna reduce the number of people who are present in the room to comply with best practices during the coronavirus, and so they're going to be actually broadcasting from a small room Off the conference center, my understanding is it will probably still be in the conference center, but it's a smaller room. So they will have fewer people in the room at any given time during the broadcast of General Conference. But as I say, some members have looked at this as a prophecy of President Nelson, that this would be a conference unlike any other conference. And in the last episode, I said, well, that's not strictly true because the April 1919 General Conference was postponed for two months to June of 1919 due to the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic at the time and which was ravaging not only the people in Utah, not only the people in the United States, but people throughout the world, just like this coronavirus is doing. And hopefully this coronavirus will get nowhere near as bad as the Spanish flu was. And I think we're taking a lot of important steps to keep that from happening. But I also said that a similar thing had happened in 1957 when the General Conference in Utah was completely canceled because of another bad flu that was sweeping the area. And when I was sharing this with my friend Alan Mount, he said, yeah, but those weren't exactly like what's gonna happen at this General Conference where General Conference is not gonna be postponed, it's not gonna be canceled, it will still go on, it's just gonna be broadcast, and people are not gonna be able to go to Salt Lake City to attend in person, they're just going to have to listen from home. And then he said, ha! checkmate to me. Well, I had to admit that he had a point, but then I did some further research and I found out that actually in April of 1942, the first conference that was held after the declaration of war by the United States entering into what would become World War II. In April 1942, it does appear that the exact same thing happened, that people were told not to assemble in the tabernacle for general conference, that the talks would be given, but people were to stay at home, and that the proceedings from conference would be transmitted by radio for people to listen to in their homes. So actually, what Alan Mount said to me about checkmate was premature. That was only check, Alan. What I just told you is checkmate. This kind of thing, exactly this kind of thing, has happened before, with the whole point being that to the extent that people are interpreting President Nelson's words that this conference would be unlike any other as a prediction of the coronavirus and the alterations to General Conference that are happening as a result of it, yeah, this has happened before exactly the same way, April 1942. Thank you very much. Another thing that has come to my mind while speaking with a friend of mine who is a member of the church down in Utah Is that in his social media feeds, he has seen that there are some faithful Mormons who have an interesting take on a prophecy from the Old Testament as it relates to the big earthquake that happened in Utah last week. As all of you know, there was a big earthquake in Utah last week, and as a result of it, the statue of Moroni on top of the Salt Lake Temple was shaken to the point where the horn that Moroni has in his hand and that he has up to his lips and he is apparently blowing for all the world to hear, that horn got broken off and fell down. As I say, some perspicacious members of the LDS church have noted a prophecy in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Amos, that predicted this very event. It predicted the fact that the horn from Moroni would be broken off and would fall down. They find this amazing prophecy In the book of Amos, chapter 3 and verse 14. Let me read that to you now. In the King James Version, be prepared to be amazed that the author of Amos, hundreds and thousands of years ago, was able through the divine foreknowledge given of God to prophesy this event that the horn from Moroni would be broken off and fall down. Here it goes, verse 14 of chapter 3. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Beth El and the horns of the altar. Are you waiting for it? Pay attention now. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So there it is talking about the altar, of course, and the altar is closely associated with the temple in ancient Israel. So obviously it's talking about a horn that is closely associated with the temple, even the temple in Salt Lake City. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So not only did he see that it would be cut off, but that it would fall to the ground. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a second. Talking about the horns of the altar being cut off and falling to the ground thousands of years ago does not seem to bear a whole lot of resemblance to Moroni's horn being shaken off by an earthquake and then falling to the ground. Actually, I'm not even sure it made it to the ground. I think it made it to the roof where it caught, but I'm not sure. It was a difficult picture for me to see. There was a picture of it that I saw on the internet with a little circle around it. And I think the circle around it was up there on the top of the Salt Lake Temple where the horn had been caught before it actually fell to the ground, but close enough for government work. Some of those people who have heard about this prophecy and its application to the situation with Moroni have suggested That the horn of an altar, by the way, the altar in the temple was an altar where sacrifices were performed. It was either square or rectangular. Anyway, it had four corners on the surface. And at the edge of each corner, there was a horn. In other words, there was a pointy place where it protruded at each of those edges. Those are what are the horns of the altar. And some people have suggested that the horn of an altar is actually very different from a horn that a person blows in order to make a noise out the other end. And in fact, even though the words are the same in English, they would not be the same in Hebrew. The horn of an altar, the pointy projection of an altar would not be the same word in Hebrew as the horn that a person would blow in order to make music or noise or proclaim the gospel as Moroni does from the top of the Salt Lake Temple. I did a little research on this prophecy and I wanted to share with you the results of that research because I think it's interesting. Now, this comes from a source that is not Mormon, which is why it will probably not mention Moroni anywhere in this analysis. The question is, what was the significance of the horns of the altar in Amos 3.14? Answer, in speaking of judgment, God says the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. We read that, Amos 3.14. What were these horns of the altar? Why were they important? The horns were horn-like projections at the four corners of the altar of burnt offering. I covered that already. God's instructions for the altar's construction specified horns. And this is from Exodus 27, 2, where God is giving the directions on how exactly to make this altar. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece. During Amos' day, the Israelites had apostatized and had erected altars to false gods, 1 Kings 12 speaks of two such pagan altars set up in Israel, one in Dan and one in Beth-el. Now wait a second. Amos 3.14 mentions Beth-el, doesn't it? It says, I will also visit the altars of Beth-el and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So it seems like this may have been a pagan altar that was patterned after the altar in the temple. These altars had been constructed with horns at the corners akin to the altar in Jerusalem. When God says that the horns of the altar would fall off, he is assuring Israel that he would judge their idolatry. Indeed, God says earlier in the same verse, on the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar in Jerusalem had provided a refuge for fugitives. And this is the part that I thought of when I first heard of this passage. Those who caught hold of the horns of the altar were granted Asylum. And you may remember that if there was a person who was being pursued by another individual who had a blood oath or something where he was justified by the law in enacting vengeance against this person, because this person had killed either intentionally or even unintentionally a relative or family member of the person seeking vengeance, that the person who was in trouble could run to the altar and could grab hold of the horns of the altar. And that was sanctuary. As long as the person was holding on the horns of the altar, the other individual could not kill them under the law of Moses. This use of the horns sheds additional light on God's statement in Amos 3.14. Some scholars believe that God's promise that the horns of the altar would fall to the ground meant that there would be no place of asylum, i.e. no place to escape the coming judgment. So this is what scholars think about this passage in Amos chapter 3 verse 14, they do not see any relationship to the Salt Lake Temple or to the horn that Moroni blows and that was broken and fell during the earthquake in March of 2020 in Salt Lake City. But actually, as I think about this more, the very fact that this verse is taken completely out of context and applied to events today says a number of things. First off, it says that there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament. There are so many words and so many verses contained there and also in the New Testament for that matter, but in the Old Testament alone, there are 39 books. There are hundreds and thousands of verses in the Old Testament. And all it takes is a little imagination, a little creativity, a little gift of the Holy Ghost. And you can find something in the Old Testament that is going to apply to something that is happening today in your world around you. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. From one point of view, from a scholarly point of view, it's completely violating the context in which this prophecy was originally written. But on the other hand, if all you do is go by the context in which prophecies were originally written, you're going to have a dull, dead book or collection of books in the Old Testament that really have little to nothing to do with our modern day life, thousands of years after it was written. And it is this ability of people to find connections ...between these prophecies, even if they're taken out of context, and apply them to events in today's world... ...that continues to make the Old Testament something that is relevant and important to people today. You will remember that in the last episode, I talked at some length about the extent to which Matthew... ...or the author of Matthew would take prophecies from the Old Testament and rip them out of context and apply them to the life of Jesus. He did it in very creative ways. Sometimes he would make prophecies from the Old Testament, apply to things that they were never intended when they were originally written. And it's obvious from looking at that they were not written to mean what it is that Matthew says they mean. And then sometimes he might even change his narrative of Jesus's life in order to make those prophecies apply. He did both things. And we talked about that in The last episode. So that's the negative side of what it was that Matthew did. On the positive side, he made the Old Testament completely relevant and vital to the early Christians of his day in the same way that these Mormons are taking this passage from Amos chapter 3 verse 14 and making it completely vital to Mormons of today. So there is a positive side to it. I don't think it makes the verse any more correctly interpreted. I don't think it makes it any less taken out of context but it does make it vital to today's Mormons. And indeed, this may be what Nephi was getting at when he talked about likening the scriptures unto ourselves. We hear that passage a lot in church that Nephi said to liken the scriptures unto ourselves, and we are told that we need to liken the scriptures unto ourselves as well. But usually when Mormons talk about that, we're talking about likening the lessons of the scriptures unto ourselves. And if certain advice was given to members of the LDS church in the early days in the Doctrine and Covenants, then we can take those, we can apply them to ourselves and we can learn lessons from those revelations that even though they were given to specific people, that they have lessons in them that we can apply to our lives. What Nephi may have been indicating is something that was prevalent among ancient Jews including the author of Matthew which was to take the scriptures and regardless of what it was they meant when they were originally written to take those and it was actually a positive thing and considered to be something to be encouraged to take them and no matter how much you had to wrest them out of their context but to apply them unto yourselves and in fact we also talked last week about how the Book of Mormon took the prophecy about the sealed book in Isaiah 29 and expanded upon it. And even though the actual original meaning of Isaiah about the sealed book in Isaiah 29 had nothing whatsoever to do with Martin Harris's visit to Charles Antone in 1828 to get Charles Anton's opinion about these characters that Joseph Smith said he had transcribed and copied off of the gold plates, together with his interpretation of the gold plates, Even though the prophecy in Isaiah 29 has nothing to do with that event, yet the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi 27 elaborates upon that prophecy from Isaiah 29 to make it apply to that visit by Martin Harris to Charles Antone. And in this way, a passage of scripture that really has nothing to do with it becomes immediate. It becomes important. It becomes relevant again to the believers in the Book of Mormon. And one of the ways it does this Is because it lets believers in the Book of Mormon understand that these events are so important that they were prophesied of thousands of years ago and they have been hidden in the Bible. And only after the thing happened that was prophesied did we understand what it was that that prophecy actually meant. There is nobody who is reading Isaiah 29 about the sealed book who ever thought that it applied to the Book of Mormon prior to. The Book of Mormon coming off the press, and prior to the visit by Martin Harris to Charles Anton nobody came up with that independently. It was only after the fact that that connection was able to be made. The same with Amos three fourteen. I can guarantee you that before the earthquake in Salt Lake and the breaking of the horn of Moroni, nobody ever looked at. Amos chapter 3, verse 14, and said, Hey, this means that there's going to be an earthquake or something bad's going to happen in Salt Lake City, and the angel Moroni, he's going to have his horn broken off and it's going to fall to the ground. Nobody could have done that because it was only after it happened that we could look back and see what it was that this prophet was actually prophesying of. And that's part of the wonder of it. There's actually a passage, and I think it's in Isaiah, I'm not going to look it up right now, where I think that it actually talks about this phenomenon that God speaks of things before they come to pass, but it's only after they come to pass that we realize what it was that he was talking about. So on the one hand, it can make people look at this and think, well, this isn't much of a prophecy if you can't really understand what it is before the fact. In other words, we can't really know that this is what it was prophesying about because nobody could interpret it accurately before the thing happened that is fulfilling the prophecy. It's only after the fact that we can. On the other hand, that's what makes it so exciting for people who live in the day in which the prophecies are being fulfilled. And that day can be any day. If we have enough knowledge of the scriptures and enough imagination and enough creativity to find those connections and apply them to the events of our day. There's something else that's been going on is that a number of people have been posting a prophecy, not from the Old Testament, but from the Doctrine and Covenants. It's section 45 talking about the last days and talking specifically about an overflowing scourge. The idea being that this is the coronavirus that is being prophesied. Let me find this for you. Hang on a second. I've got my Bible in front of me. I've got it right over here to my bookshelf Ah, to get my triple combination. Okay, so let me bring this over here. Let me find uh, Doctrine and Covenants 45, and let me see if I can find this for you so you can see how well the Lord prophesied the coronavirus back in Uh, 1831, March 7th, 1831, when this prophecy was given. Okay, here it is starting in verse 26. And in that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars. Well, we certainly have wars and rumors of wars today. We've never had that before. And the whole earth shall be in commotion and men's hearts shall fail them. Well, that's because everybody's so worried about the coronavirus pandemic. And they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. Well, we've certainly heard people say that. Even I have said that. And the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. Well, that's happening all over the place. And when the times of the Gentiles has come in, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. So we know that this is in the days of the restoration after the Book of Mormon has come forth. Of course, this prophecy was given a year after the Book of Mormon came forth. But nevertheless, we press on. In verse 29, but they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. And in that generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, here, generation is going to have to become a more flexible word because if we use the word generation as it is usually used, i.e. 20 years, 25 years, even if we expand it to the lifetime of the oldest person who has ever lived, then this prophecy is having difficulty being applied to the coronavirus because those who were alive in 1830, when the Book of Mormon came forth, i.e., when this light broke forth among them, that was 1830. So if we give 100 years, if we give 110 years and go to 1940, well, that generation has long since passed. That's actually what, 67? That's 80 years ago. So there's nobody in that generation when the Book of Mormon came forth who is still standing to be around when the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that's why I say that the word generation is going to have to become elasticized to be as long as it needs to be in order to fit the prophecy. I used to be an apologist. I think I've mentioned that before. Believe me, I know how it's done verse 31, and there shall be men standing in that generation. Once again, elastic generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge. Here it is. Here's the coronavirus. An overflowing scourge for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. Well, obviously that's the coronavirus. It can't be the Spanish flu that covered the land back in 1918 and 1919. No, this is the coronavirus, because it's happening in our day. You see, this is how we apply scriptures to our day and how we tend to see in the prophecies of the scriptures what is happening in our day and not what has happened in days past. In other words, during the time of the Spanish flu, America was getting involved in World War One. Somebody could look at that and say, hey, that's wars and rumors of wars. And we've also gone through World War II a long time ago. That's certainly wars and rumors of wars. But no, we're gonna look at this passage today and we're gonna talk about the wars and rumors of wars today, even though they pale in comparison to what has happened twice previously in the world wars that this entire world basically has been involved in. But it goes on because it talks about the earthquake in Salt Lake City as well. Verse 32, but my disciples shall stand... In holy places and shall not be moved, but among the wicked men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. And here we get to the earthquakes and there shall be earthquakes also in diverse places and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me and they will take up the sword one against another and they will kill one another. So you see, this even predicts the earthquake in Salt Lake City. There will be earthquakes also in diverse places. Well, Salt Lake City is in a diverse place, so it must be prophesying of that as well. Now, of course, there have been a number of earthquakes between the time that this was written in 1831 and 2020 when this earthquake happened in Salt Lake City. That's really not the point, is it? And a lot of those earthquakes have been a lot worse than the one that happened in Salt Lake City and caused a lot more damage than the one in Salt Lake City and resulted in the loss of a great deal more life than the one in Salt Lake City. I'm not aware of any news reports of any life being lost by this earthquake in Salt Lake City. If I missed it and somebody did get injured or killed, I apologize. But there are obviously many bigger earthquakes that have happened in the last 200 years or 189 years since this prophecy was written that would more likely qualify. As this earthquake. But of course, this prophecy speaks of earthquakes, plural, so they're all covered anyway. But then in verse 34, we get a very interesting comment here. It says, And now when I, the Lord, had spoken these words unto my disciples, they were troubled. Okay, wait a second. Wait a second. This isn't a prophecy that the Lord is giving in 1831. What's happening in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants is that the Lord is revealing the words that he, the Lord, told his disciples. 2,000 years before or around 1,800 years before this prophecy was given. So actually, these words about the prophecy of the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes in diverse places and this desolating scourge go all the way back to Jesus Christ. So really, taking this prophecy even in the context, once again, there's that word again, context. I remember the Hugh Nibley once said that a text without a context is a pretext. And we can see that happening with some regularity when it comes to the application of these old prophecies to current events. But the context of this is not a prophecy in 1831. It is a prophecy given around the year 30 CE, when Jesus was giving these words to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. And yet, it seems to be a prophecy of a day that would come when the light would break forth. Once again, this is borrowing from Isaiah. The light will break forth among the people, and that light is going to be the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith, and that that generation shall not pass. There shall be men standing still in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge. So the coronavirus is a little bit late if we go by that timing, and yet, once again, it's close enough. For government work. So there's another example of a prophecy, a latter-day prophecy that is being seen by many Mormons as being fulfilled by the coronavirus. Not just the Old Testament, not just Old Testament or New Testament scriptures, but also modern scriptures showing that not only is Amos a prophet of God, but Joseph Smith is a prophet of God as well. And these are the types of things that give confirmation and comfort to some degree to many people who are members of the church, that crazy things are going on. They don't have control over them. It's scary out there and who knows what's going to happen next. But the idea is that all these things have been foreseen. All these events are in God's hand and we as faithful Latter-day Saints will be protected so long as we continue to be faithful and do what it is that we have been told to do by the president of the church. One other thing I need to say about this prophecy is that the reason that this had to be reinterpreted Jesus' words had to be reinterpreted in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants is because the words that are being quoted or paraphrased here come from Matthew 24. And in those words, it sounds for all the world, like Jesus is saying, that the people who are alive in his generation will not pass until they see all of these signs fulfilled. Indeed, that is exactly what it is that he appears to be saying. And yet we know that people who are living in his generation certainly passed away 2,000 years ago, and of those signs were fulfilled. So in order to give those renewed application and revivication, section 45, has Jesus changed the wording a bit? No longer is it the generation in which Jesus lived that shall not pass away until all these signs shall be fulfilled. Rather, it is the generation that is alive when the restoration of the gospel happens through Joseph Smith that shall not pass away until all these signs shall be fulfilled. And as we have seen, even if we give the most elastic definition of the word generation to that, it's still about 80 years overdue. Now, a lot of members of the church and other Christians are seeing these cataclysmic activities, the earthquake, the pandemic as being signs of the second coming. And yet, according to a report that I received yesterday, President Dallin H. Oaks was at a missionary meeting in Las Vegas on Saturday, March 14th. So this is recent. A lot of these things had happened, I don't think the earthquake had happened yet, but certainly the coronavirus was beginning to make its march across the world. And President Oaks told the Assembled Missionaries, according to this report, that these were not signs of the Second Coming, that the Second Coming was not around the corner, but that this was a test. Here are the words that are reported to have been said by President Oaks on March 14th in Las Vegas. This is not the end of the world, but merely a test. A trial run for the Second Coming, if you will, physically and spiritually, If you've been following the counsel from the prophet about ministering, emergency preparedness, and at-home church, you have no need to fear you passed the test. So according to Elder Oaks, it's just a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. If this had been a real emergency, anyway... This is just a test of the emergency broadcasting system to see if we're doing everything that we're supposed to. So all the people who are getting terribly ill from the coronavirus, all the people who are actually dying from the coronavirus, and all the the fear that this is engendering and concern and worry among so many people, well, hey, this is just God giving us a test. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's amazing the kind of God that President Oaks describes. By making these statements, I don't think that that really computes in his head, that if God is just giving us a test to see if we're doing everything that President Nelson told us to do, and he's going to kill people all over the place in order to make this test happen, well, hey, it's okay. I'm God. What's a few hundred or thousand deaths? I just want to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. And it's also interesting to me that President Oak seems very, very comfortable in saying what it is that he knows. He knows this isn't the second coming. I think that's a pretty easy prophecy to make. I think Joseph Smith made a similar prophecy back in 1841 or 1843 or so when I think it was, was it George Miller who had predicted the end of the world on a certain day and Joseph Smith got up and looked up in the sky and said, this is much too nice a day for the world to end. And in fact, Joseph Smith was right. He was a true prophet. And I think that President Oaks will be proven a true prophet as well through this prophecy that he gave on March 14th in Las Vegas, that this is not the end of the world. It's merely a test. It's a trial run for the second coming. You would have to be a prophet of God to know that this is not the end of the world. It's like that scene in Ghostbusters in the basement of the New York Metropolitan Library where, have, where they have all those books that are stacked up and Dan Aykroyd talks about, this is like this other paranormal event where books were stacked one on top of another and Bill Murray looks at the stack of books and says, you're right, no human being would stack books like that. Symmetrical book stacking. Just like the Philadelphia Mass Tribulance of 1947. You're right. No human being would stack books like this. Whereas the same idea was put a little bit more classically in Hamlet. There needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Thank you, President Oaks, for telling us that this is not the second coming. But notice also what it is that Elder Oaks does with what he says. He says that this is a test to see if you are doing everything that you were supposed to do with ministering, with emergency preparedness, and with home church. He says with home church. Now, remember last week when we talked about that sometimes in order to make prophecies come to pass, a little tinkering is necessary to be done with the prophecy itself so that it will more accurately see its fulfillment in what it is that's happening today. Well, in real time, what we're seeing here is the same kind of thing with Elder Oaks because President Nelson never talked about having home church church. That was never part of the program. The fact is, is that church was reduced from three hours to two hours. And so instead of going the third hour, what we are supposed to do at home is not have home church, but to study the come follow me manual at home as a family. It was never described as home church. And yet now that we're on the brink, and actually having a situation where people are having quote-unquote church in their homes, now Elder Oaks is recasting and reformulating what it is that President Nelson said originally in order to make it match what is going on today. And so we can see happening in real time what it is that I talked about historically in the last episode. This is a time-honored tradition. It was done among the New Testament writers when they took Old Testament prophecies and monkeyed with them in order to make them prophesy of Jesus Christ. It's being done today with Mormons with Amos chapter 3 verse 14 to make it prophesy about the horn of Moroni getting shaken off in an earthquake and falling to the ground, even though it didn't make it to the ground, it only made it to the roof. And we also know that among the Dead Sea Scroll community at Qumran, the very same sort of thing transpired. And on their scrolls, they took quotations from prophets from the Old Testament. They wrenched them out of context in order that they would apply and prophesy and predict exactly what was happening among the Dead Sea Scroll community. These are called the Pesherim. That's P-E-S-H-E-R. The I-M is the plural Hebrew suffix. We would call them Peshers. But this is exactly the sort of thing that was done there. It is a time-honored tradition. It has been going on ever since Scripture was first committed to parchment. And so even though what we are seeing is not something that actually makes the prophecies predictive or given by revelation from God necessarily, at least not in such a way that we can tell before the fact what it is that this prophecy is predicting, but only after the fact can we understand the nature of the prophecy. As I say, it's not making these prophecies more predictive, but what it is doing is situating what it is that the LDS Church and even Elder Oaks is doing within the context of a time-honored tradition. Okay, so that's, I think, about all I have about the predictions for the coronavirus. Let me go to something else, because in the last several months, I've been trying to continue my reading of famous world literature. And doing so, I'm actually going back and I'm reading the books that I was supposed to read in high school, but I never got around to reading. And recently, I have read Humboldt's Gift by Saul Bellow. I read that since the beginning of the year. I read those five plays by Anton Chekhov, which I talked about in a prior podcast, I also read the book Sid Hartha by Herman Hesse, that was a book that was definitely supposed to be read in high school, and also Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis, I finished that recently. And I've just started reading a book that is not a classic of world literature, but is a classic of LDS history, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview by D. Michael Quinn. Now I had gotten that book back in the 1980s because it was so controversial, it was raising such a stir among Mormon scholars and among the church generally, that I felt I needed to get a copy of it and read it. But I read it at that time, not wanting to know what it was that was contained in the pages. It's a strange thing to get a book and read it, trying not to learn what it is that it has to say. But I've got to confess to you, that's what I did with that book. Now, I've gotten a paperback version, which is a second edition of the same book, and now I'm reading it again, and now I'm actually learning things because I actually want to find out what it is that D. Michael Quinn had to say. It's a strange situation, but when you are a faithful Mormon, you can spend an awful lot of time trying not to think about your religion. And it's really better if you don't learn anything at all. It's like Gandalf saying before they go in to see Denethor, actually, perhaps you shouldn't say anything at all. So carefully, Lord Denethor is born his father. Give him news of his beloved son's death would be most unwise. I do not mention further. or him. And say nothing about Aragorn either. In fact, it's better if you don't speak at all about him too. But I've only just started reading that book. The comment I wanted to make was about Siddhartha. Now, Siddhartha is a book by Hermann Hesse, and it's a famous book, but I had never read it before. But basically, it's a book that talks about the spiritual growth of a young man in India who is raised in a certain religion, the Brahmin religion. His dad is a Brahmin priest, and he is raised with the leaders around him of this religion, and he learns from them. And eventually he goes on, and he tries different religions and different other ways of finding happiness and fulfillment in life. And he finds them all unsatisfactory until the very end, where he discovers where his true fulfillment lies. And I'm not gonna do a spoiler on this. I'll let you read it to find out what it is. But early on in the book, he starts talking about the point he comes to in his early life where he has been raised as a Brahmin, and here I think of a Mormon. Whatever the religion is, it can apply to it, but it was like my experience. I wasn't born in the church, I wasn't raised in the church, but I did study the church very, very much and very deeply after I joined the church in 1978, and it wasn't too many years that went by until I came to the same point that this young man, Siddhartha, in this novel comes to early in his life. And that is the point at which I began to understand that even though the, the gospel was very exciting to me, I was learning all sorts of new things, that there was a limit to the new things and the insights that I could learn from the church. Because the leaders of the church only taught so many things. And then they started teaching them over and over again, or at least I started hearing them over and over. And there was a certain wall that I came to beyond which the leaders of the church would not teach. In fact, they were very particular about defining where that wall was. And beyond that, you were not supposed to go because those were the things that were not revealed. You were supposed to stay with the doctrine of the church, i.e. those things that had been revealed, which actually ended up being those things that had been systematized and correlated and were the approved teachings of the church for the leaders to teach as well as for the members to learn. And after a while, hearing these things over and over again, I began to become dissatisfied With the teachings of the church. It wasn't that I didn't think that what it had to teach was good in many respects, but I was dissatisfied with the idea that I could not learn more. And I was faced with this paradox that the LDS church teaches to have continuing light and knowledge, to continue in our growth of understanding and knowledge of truth. And yet when the rubber hit the road, the opposite was actually the way things really were. We were not supposed to continue to learn about things to receive further light and knowledge. We were to receive further light and knowledge only to a certain point. And that further light and knowledge was supposed to be the same light and knowledge that the leaders of the church taught us. Any other light and knowledge was really pretty much off limits. So here's this passage from the book Siddhartha. It starts early on in the first chapter of the book and it's called the son of the Brahmin and that would be the religion of India that Siddhartha grew up in and that his dad was a teacher in as well so here's what it says within himself Siddhartha had begun to nourish discontent he had begun to feel that the love of his father and the love of his mother and even the love of his friend would not forever after delight him soothe him Satisfy and suffice him. He had begun to surmise that his venerable father's father was very religious and very faithful as a Brahma or as a member of the religion. He had begun to surmise that his venerable father and his other teachers, that these wise Brahmins had already conveyed the majority and the best part of their wisdom, that they had already poured out their plenty into his waiting vessel. And the vessel was not full. The mind was not satisfied. The soul was not calm. The heart not stilled. And now let me skip down a bit to conclude with this part. Was there another path worth seeking? This is what Siddharth is asking himself. If everything that I've heard, if I've really learned everything there is to learn within the system of religion in which I was raised, and yet my mind is not satisfied, my soul is not calm, my heart is not stilled, was there another path worth seeking? Alas, no one showed the way. No one knew it. No one's father, nor the teachers or the sages, nor the holy sacrificial hymns. There was nobody who showed the way. That's the end of the quote. There was nobody who showed the way within his religious paradigm. And so he begins to think that if there is a way, then it must be outside of his religious paradigm. And this is what leads him to leave his original religion in which he was raised, that of the Brahmin. So I certainly recommend that you may want to get this book and read it. At some time in the future, perhaps during this period in which we are supposed to shelter at home, you've got plenty of time on your hand. This is an improving book and a very, very good read. And one that opened my mind to similarities in my life and the character Siddhartha here. And one of the great things about literature is not only do I learn new things and receive impressions and insights and ideas from other minds, greater minds in mind that I can use and incorporate into myself, but also many of the things that I understand, but have not yet articulated, but I've lived through are articulated for me. And as they are articulated in a book like this and this passage I just read, I can see it happening in my life. And in this way, great literature can have the ability to reveal myself to me as amazing as that may sound. Well, anyway, that's one of the great things about literature. That's why I consider it to be scripture. I talked about that with John DeLynn a little bit. I may talk about that more in a later episode, but I do think that scripture is not just stuff that is given by God through a prophet as we typically understand within a Mormon context or within a Christian or Jewish context. But scripture is writing or words that resonate with us, that resonate with our soul, with our spirit, and that help reveal things to us, even if that revelation is of ourselves to our own selves, like this passage from the book Siddhartha did with me. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and set up the next part of this podcast, and it may be another episode in this podcast, because I'm starting to get to about an hour. I'm actually at 55 minutes into this podcast. I am going to be doing some editing. Believe me, you'll appreciate it. If you heard all the spaces and all the gaffs I've made so far, not to mention all the coughing and just a little bit of swearing, you would be very appreciative for any editing that I'm going to do. And I will do some here this morning. I'm going to try and put this up tonight. And if I can, if I can, I'll try and put up some Uh, every day, every other day, as much as I can, along with my other responsibilities that I have. But once again, I'm doing this in order to up the production, up the content being published of Radio Free Mormon, in order to do my part to help the listeners of this program through the sheltering at home that's going on as part of this coronavirus pandemic. So what I'm going to do is, we've got General Conference coming up here. It's supposed to be, I believe, on the weekend of April 5th, and I'm sure there'll be a great deal to talk about once that General Conference occurs. But I have not yet done my commentary on the last General Conference from October of 2019. Now I did do one episode dealing with a talk by Elder Oaks. I think it was the Saturday morning session of General Conference, and I did an entire episode on that, but really I haven't talked about anything else that anybody else said during all the other talks in all the other sessions of General Conference. So what I wanna do is I want to talk about some of those items in General Conference from 2019, October, that struck me. And what I did yesterday in order to prepare for that was I went onto the lds.org or Church of Jesus churchofjesuschrist.org, the, the LDS Church's main official website, I looked up the General Conference, from last October, and then I took all the talks in order and I copied and pasted them in a Word document. And so that you know, when I take all the talks from General Conference and put them into a Word document, I also put numbers on each of the pages. Fortunately, actually I only have to insert a number and the computer does the rest for me and puts numbers on each of the pages. There are a total of 129 pages of text from General Conference and that's not including any pictures. So 129 pages and what I did yesterday was I went through the first three sessions of General Conference reading through and I highlighted different parts of General Conference which struck me and I thought maybe I would comment on. And what I'm going to start doing starting tomorrow is moving my way through General Conference, hitting some of the highlights from October 2019 General Conference Just to have something to talk about with you while we are sheltering together and hoping that the desolating scourge, like the angel of death among the Israelites in Egypt, passes us by. In addition to sheltering in place, you may want to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the posts and lintel of your house in order to have the coronavirus pass you by. I haven't heard of anybody taking the Old Testament that literally yet, but perhaps it is only a matter of time. So that's about all that I have for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that you stay safe. Please remember, wash your hands frequently, cough into your elbows, and stay sheltered at home. Stay away from other people. Maintain a distance of at least six feet. And together, we will whip this thing. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.